it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Love this podcast because it crushes your dreams of getting rich quick. They actually got me into reading stats for anything. You're tuned in to the Investing for Beginners podcast. Led by Andrew Sather and Dave Ahern. Step-by-step premium investing guidance for beginners. Your path to financial freedom starts now. Starts now. All right, folks, welcome to Investing for Beginners podcast. Tonight we have episode 239. We have three great listener questions we're going to answer. Actually, two. One is a two-parter that we're going to answer tonight. And then Andrew and I will do our little usual give and take. So without any further ado, I'll go ahead and start us off. So I have hello. I was hoping to pick your brain to provide a little more color on Fibonacci retracements as it pertains to stocks. Recently came across the term and seems like something that would be more valuable to a short-term investor slash day trader. But anyway, was curious if this is something you pay attention to as a long-term investor. And if so, what is the value of paying attention to them? Respectfully, Nick. So Andrew, what are your thoughts on Fibonacci retracements and that whole idea? This is an interesting question from Nick. It is an interesting question. Basically, Fibonacci retracement, it's talking about price of a stock charts when it comes to a stock. So there's a problem with relying on the charts and only relying on the charts. And that's that I haven't seen anything compelling that makes me think that it's a reliable way to invest. I mean, maybe trade, but definitely not invest. And it just seems like a really hard game to play. We have to understand that the basics of the stock market is that there are businesses underneath these stocks And so the reason why a stock goes up over the long term is because the business is doing well. So it's really not that hard of a game. I mean, you can make it really, really difficult and confusing, and we have and people have, but it's a lot easier to find good companies and let them do the work for you rather than trying to play all these crazy games with the price and the chart. Because I can't wrap my head around why it should logically work, and I haven't seen any evidence to show why it even works, it makes me think that it's not something that has any value for me to pay attention to. And I think for most people, that's the same thing as well. Because you can't pay attention to everything, and if if it's not worth your time, it's not worth your time. So not maybe the most happy answer, but I think it's closest to the truth. I would agree with that. I think one of the things that it makes it a challenge is there's a lot more effort and time that you have to spend watching the price movement of a company that you're buying because you're basing your whole investment on that price movement. 
as opposed to valuing the company or basing your assessment or purchase on the potential value of the company. When you're using charts to invest, you're really looking at the stock price pretty much solely. And at least from what I understand, I'm a novice at this. And so this would be something that I would not have a lot of detailed in-depth knowledge about. You could go back and listen to Timothy Sykes. We did an interview with him about a year and a half ago. And this is something that he does and he's good at it. And it's something he's spent a lot of time working on to become good at it. But he has a system that he's worked out that works for him. But this is not something that appeals to me. And it's not part of my nature to, I guess, I feel like I would be speculating on companies as opposed to valuing a company. When I buy a company like Visa, for example, that's a company that I'm looking at the what I think the company is going to be worth in the future and trying to assess those metrics and those numbers as opposed to wondering what the momentum of the stock is going to be, whether it's going to be up or down. And there's lots of ins and outs to really getting into that kind of investing. And it's just not something that I necessarily use. I mean, I frankly don't really look at charts much at all, other than I look at graphs through Braden's website to look at how the company's fundamentals are doing. But as far as like looking at the stock price and a chart of that, I very, very rarely look at that. Is that something you look at all? It's rarely. I think when you say it feels like speculation. I think the reality is it, it more is very close to speculation than it is actually a, a good strategy for most people. There's fundamental reasons why stocks move and it can have momentum and that's all true. But to think that because stocks moved a certain way yesterday, they should move a similar way tomorrow. I just don't, I don't see how that makes any sense. Yeah, I don't either. It's just one of those things for me. It's a different kind of investing and it's just not something that appeals to me. And so it's not something I've ever really dived into and had glancing knowledge of it, but it's not something that I pursue. And I just feel like there's so much more effort that needs to be done to do it well because you have to pay so much closer attention to the price movements of the company than you do every quarter wondering whether the company was able to meet its targets and achieve its goals for whatever goals that they're working for. Whereas every day you have to worry about whether Microsoft is going to go up or down or not. Yeah. The people who say that they can, you'll notice the people, the talking heads who say that they know the mood of the market, they're either constantly wrong or they're replaced by a new talking head who thinks he knows that he knows how to take the temperature of the market and project the mood of the market tomorrow. It's just, it kind of pisses me off, but it is what it is. (laughs) So I think we've beat that as much as we could. So let's move on to the next question. This one says, Hey, Andrew and Dave, I'm a Canadian investor and just want to say that I have really enjoyed listening to your podcast and I've learned so much. You guys have had a big influence on helping me to build a foundation of knowledge to begin investing. I do, however, have a couple of questions. I'm 27 years old and just started investing a couple months ago. I currently have two separate portfolios, both tax-free savings accounts. One is specifically for safer defensive dividend stocks to hold for the long term and bonds. The other is going to be more aggressive and focus on deep value and growth stocks for a shorter term. I plan to do an 80-20 split between them so as to limit my risk. However, once the market gets too high to justify putting money into one or the other or both, 
Would it be wiser to hold cash in a savings account until an opportunity to invest arises? Invest in bonds or continue to dollar cost average? I know dollar cost averaging is more of a psychological play, thus I am curious on your thoughts. When it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Budgeting was always a challenge for me. I struggled to find the best way to keep track of all of my money, not to mention all the time tracking down receipts, cataloging expenses, and trying to figure out what went wrong with my air quote system until Monarch Money. Monarch Money allowed me to easily see what is going on with my finances, helping me get a better handle on my spending, budgets, and more. It's my go-to app every day, more so than my bank, because I can quickly see where I am with my budgets and spending, allowing me to invest more and spend time on the things that I want to do. It's my GPS for money. Monarch is the top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all of your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Create custom budgets, set goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com beginners. Unlike other personal finance apps, Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it so easy to set up, customize, and use. Monarch has built-in features to collaborate with your partner, family, or financial advisor. Invite them to your account at no extra cost, and they'll get their own login info and a joint view of all of your finances. Monarch is the most customizable budgeting app. Change the layout of your dashboard, toggle between light and dark mode, create custom budgets and notifications, set up automatic rules for transactions and notifications, and more. In fact, Monarch Money is one of the first to bring you direct Apple Card, Apple Cash, and savings syncing with the latest iOS 17.4 update. Now you can sync your wallet directly for seamless budgeting. After trying out Monarch for myself, I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash beginners. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash beginners for your extended 30-day free trial. So what's your answer to the first part of this question? Well, I think there's several things that kind of come to mind. So the first thing is timing the market is more important than timing the market. Being invested as much as you can with your risk tolerance and your comfortableness level is more important than trying to hold for the air quote perfect time to get into the market. And that becomes kind of a timing the market kind of idea. And I have yet to see anybody like we were just talking about. I have yet to see anybody that can perfectly time the market. Even Uncle Charlie and Uncle Warren do not time the market and they don't even try. They just buy when they buy and and it goes. 
there are times that you will find great values and there's going to be lots of targets available. And there's going to be other times where it might be slimmer pickings and you might have to either reinvest in what you have or trying to find newer investment ideas might be a little more challenging in those times. So there's going to be ebbs and flows to that. But the bottom line is, is that study after study after study has shown that having money in the market, working for you, compounding, building that wealth, whether it's through dividends or stock appreciation, is going to lead to the goals that you want over a longer period of time. And so if you have the wherewithal and want to be invested, it's better to be invested over the long term than it is to hold on the sidelines waiting for Google, for example, to get to your perfect price because it may never happen. And then you miss all that other opportunity to be invested. And there is something to be said for opportunity cost. And every day that you don't invest that you can invest, that is a day that you lose to compound over time. And you're not always going to find the perfect price for a perfect company. And sometimes it's better to dive in and get in now and enjoy while that company is performing. It's meeting its goals, it's executing on their plans, management's, you know, great management's in place. You know, all the economic conditions are ripe for them to do well. And you could take advantage of that. Even if you pay 10 bucks more than you really want to, in the long run, that's not going to matter. And so I would look at it as I would continue to dollar cost average. I would continue to do the things that I've done to get me to this point. And if you're comfortable being invested in the market, then keep doing it. I guess that's my first thought. So I'd like to hear what you have to say, Sir Andrew. Dollar cost averaging is not a psychological play. It is the smart play and it is the practical play. I think it's easy as an investor to get too cute and think the market looks too high. So I'm just going to sit this one out. But I would really caution like too high based on what? Too high based on your opinion of how expensive you think the market is or is it really based on what the individual stocks are? So I think before somebody tries to get into like timing the market, you know, there are really good investors who are very successful and not, they don't dollar cost average, but they are also in a very different situation than the average investor would be. So you take somebody like Warren Buffett, he gets ebbs and flows of cash that he has to deal with, with Berkshire Hathaway. Berkshire Hathaway owns these businesses, which produce his cash flow. So one year he might have, let's say a billion dollars sitting around the next year, maybe it's $2 billion next year, maybe it's 500. All this cash is flowing in, right? For most average investors, it's kind of more like a steady paycheck and, and maybe a bonus here. There's not the same constraints and not the same goals as when you look at some of these investors. So for the average investor to make progress and to have their money compound over the long term, You've got to be putting the money in. You don't want to buy expensive stocks because that's how you can lose years of compounding. So you do have to be careful what you buy. But just to generalize to say that the whole market's too high, so I'm not going to invest because I think I'm smarter than the market. I would caution that and say maybe you should learn why you think that's the case and maybe trust that there's a possibility that you're wrong. Yeah, yeah, for sure. 
I think when you think about when the market, the phrase, the market is too high, there's several things to think about when you're thinking about that. Like value investors come in all different flavors and shapes and sizes. And some people that are on the value investing side want to buy things. And when they get to whatever they think the fair value may be, they want to sell that and kind of rinse and repeat and start the whole cycle over again. Other value investors prefer to buy a company and try to hold it for as long as they can, ideally forever, but it's, you know, circumstances will change and you have to change your view when the circumstances change. And sometimes when you buy a company, the economic conditions for that company may continue for 15 or 20 years. And like Charlie Munger says, one of the biggest mistakes in compounding is interrupting it unnecessarily. And that's something to keep in mind. I'll give you an example. So Warren Buffett bought American Express back in the 60s for $8.84 a share. It's now trading at around 170 bucks a share. So he's made a nice tidy return on that over the years. <laughs> and he could have easily sold out when it got to $20 a share or $25 a share. But instead, he's held it through all these years. And, you know, he's made huge amounts of returns. Keep in mind now that it's paying almost $2.50 a share in dividends, almost making his money back on his original investment just on dividends alone through all these years. So if he'd interrupted that compounding earlier on, he would have missed out on all those gains. And the stock market history is littered with people that have gotten out of a company too soon. And you can have lots of conversations about when's the right time to get out. That's a very hard conversation to have. But one thing I do want to caution is getting out too soon. If you are comfortable with a company like Constellation Software or Brookfield Asset Management to speak in Canadian terms, or to think of somebody like Visa or MasterCard or any other company that you think has a long runway to continue to produce before something would come along and stop that happening. Why wouldn't you want to be involved in an investment for as long as you possibly can? Because that's going to give you the greater returns. Again, there's different flavors of value investing, and a lot of this comes back to your own risk and what you're comfortable with. I really go back to what Charlie said, and that is a psychological play, is, is thinking about you know being comfortable holding as the company continues to do well. And for me, that's an easy thing to do, but it isn't for everybody. And so that's something that you just have to consider and think about. But I would caution you about getting out too early because you could miss out on longer gains, especially if it's an investment that's done really well for you and is a company that's going to continue to keep producing on its economic. That's what you really want to see. Yeah. Okay. So I've beat that horse. Let's, uh, let's move on to the second horse. All right. So also I have been researching into emerging markets and industries and I hit a bit of a speed bump. Most of these companies have very little track record to go off of, aside from the management team, Jasmine being ex-Sony executives, for example, and what limited progress and financials they have thus far. I was just wondering what insight you might have as to what, how one would go about researching companies with such little information. Thanks again for all your guys' help, Carson. So, Andrew, what are your thoughts on Carson's second part of his question? It's kind of interesting. What's the best way to get started in the market? Download Andrew's ebook for free at stockmarketpdf.com. It is interesting. I hate to sound like this grumpy man tonight, Carson. It's not, don't take it personal or anything. I don't know why I've got this, this feisty streak going, but it's just something I would just avoid. And, you know, maybe that's again, going back to the, it doesn't fit my personality or my interests. 
But I really do have a reason for avoiding a lot of things. And I think emerging markets and industries, not emerging markets, let's talk about emerging industries. I think emerging industries are, it's like a minefield. It is filled with potential danger. And it's frustrating to see, especially what we've seen lately, how investors get swept away and they get seduced by stories and stocks that sound really, really good and everything sounds so positive. And it works for a while until it does, you know. Chasing momentum worked for a while. It worked for a pretty good while through 2020, 2021, 2022. You hit middle of 2022, it worked until it didn't, right? Same thing with these emerging industries, these fast-growing stocks. A lot of them worked until they didn't. So unless you feel like you are really passionate on a particular emerging industry, I would probably say that it's better to avoid a lot of those companies because it's not as easy to pick the winner as you would think. And I've used this example before. I'll say it again. Back when search engines were first starting out, Google was one of the players, was not the number one player. There were 11, 12 different search engines. Google just ended up making the best customer-friendly search engine and they ended up winning and they ended up winning big where it became winner take all and everybody else fell to the wayside. So we kind of look at today and we think, oh yeah, well, Google, duh, but it's not that obvious. And so if there's 12 companies and you know, only one of them are going to make it, how do you make that determination? I mean, every CEO and every single one of those companies probably thought that they would be the one to make it. Otherwise they wouldn't be in that business. They'd go do something else. So those are not great odds versus taking something that's a little more established and mature already has indicators of cash flow, ways that we can value the cash flow, ways that we can determine if it's cheap or expensive. I just like to go that way. So I'm sorry, Carson, I don't have any insight for you into how you would go about researching these companies because I just wouldn't because the, the little bit of information or the lack of information that discourages me from it. The fact that emerging industries are really hard to predict that discourages from me. So I can't help. That's all I can say. <laughs> well, I mean, those are all great examples. And I think one of the things that when you're investing, I think one of the things you want to think about is you want to invest where you're comfortable putting your money. And when you invest in a company, whether it's here in the United States or whether it's in Brazil or whether it's in Indonesia, you have to be comfortable that you're going to get a good return on your money. And if you're struggling to find information that can help you sleep better at night, then you have to ask yourself, why am I doing this? Are you looking to, are you looking to beat the market that you're in or are you just looking to be different to be different? And again, not trying to be negative or be, you know, Debbie Downer. But I think sometimes staying within your circle of competence or area that you're comfortable with, it's okay to push the edges because that's how we get better and that's how we learn things. But sometimes if you step outside of that limb, sometimes that limb's not that strong and we may fall. And we don't want that for anybody. And it really comes down to your comfort level of what you're trying to do and why you're trying to do it. And if you're trying to find the next Google, then that's one thing. But if you're trying to find something that's exotic for the sake of being exotic, 
you know, you have to ask yourself, why are you doing this? If I look at some of the things that I've comfortable, I have bought some companies outside the United States in the last couple of years. And it's only been because I was comfortable with the information I was able to gather about those companies, as well as the economies that they operated in and the rule of law and all the different things that go into investing in a company. And so I had a relative level of comfort out investing in those companies outside of the United States. Two of them were in Europe and one is in Canada. So it gives me a little bit of a comfort level knowing a little bit more about those companies. Now, the flip side of that is you guys have probably picked up over the last few years. I've really been big into payments and the whole fintech thing. I've probably talked ad nauseum about that with people. And it's something that really interests me. And my fiance is Brazilian. And so there have been a lot of companies out of coming out of Brazil recently that have done really, really exciting things in payments in Brazil. But the flip side of that is that I don't live there. I don't necessarily understand the laws and the cultures as well. And I've never been there yet. And really my only resource is my fiance and she doesn't work in the finance industry. That's not her cup of tea. And I don't really have any air quote people on the ground to give me information to learn more about what it is I'm trying to invest in. And so even though Warren Buffett has invested in two of the companies, I still have failed to pull the trigger on them because I just can't get over the hump of the information gap and some of the other comfort levels that I need. This is Dave to invest in those companies. It's not that they're bad investments. It's not that they're bad companies. I'm not saying bad things about Brazil, far from it. But those are all things that I have to be comfortable with before I can escalate to the point where I would buy something like that. Now, the flip side of that is I have tried to learn more about electric vehicles, batteries in particular, and where something may be an opportunity to invest in that growing opportunity. And he mentioned Sony. Well, Sony is one of the companies that builds a lot of batteries. And I attempted to try to learn something about that company and it was too hard for me. And sometimes it's okay to put that in the two part pile and move on to something else. Because again, it kind of comes back to that opportunity cost that you may be missing out on investing in something that may be closer. And, you know, it may not get you a, a hundred bagger, but it may get you a 20 bagger investing in your home turf or in Canada, for example. And there's nothing wrong with that. So I think sometimes you have to kind of weigh the pros and cons and ask yourself why you're doing it. And if, you know, for me personally, and I think I speak for Andrew too, if you're having trouble finding the information, then maybe that's, that should be a clue to you that maybe this is maybe not the best idea for an investment. Because as Andrew said, the landscape is littered with fraudulent ideas or businesses that go bankrupt because they don't have the right economics or whatever. And why play that game? That's so much of a harder game to play. And investing is already a hard enough game. And I guess I would try to stick with games that I can play and have a better opportunity to win at. That's very well said. I feel like there's been a theme tonight and it's this idea of investing in what you're comfortable with. So can you maybe speak on why that's so important? as it comes to an investor trying to get the best results they can, why is it important that they invest how they are comfortable? Well, I think it comes down to, I think you need to invest in things that you're comfortable with for mostly, honestly, for psychological reasons. I think it gives you a comfort level to feel like you can make an assessment on what happens to the company on a 
annual basis or a quarterly basis, however much you want to pay attention. So you have a better pulse on the overall economic, macroeconomic conditions that the country or company may be in. And it also gives you a better sense of you understand the culture that they're working in, the people that are working there, the product fit that, you know, whatever it is that they make or produce or service that they offer, you understand that kind of thing because it's a food you eat, a drink you drink, or a product that you use, an iPhone or something like that. All those things, I think, psychologically make you more comfortable about investing your money with that business, because even though you may not know the ins and outs of exactly all the different little microchips that are in the Apple iPhone, understand what Apple's doing and you understand what it's doing and you see other people using it and all those benefits help you get a better appreciation for the importance and the relevance of that particular item. Whereas if you're investing in Brazil, for me, I have no connection to that. I'm literally just reading a report and I don't understand how it's impacting the lives of the people that may be interacting with a new bank, for example. I don't have any way of gauging that. Whereas here, I can see the impact that Wells Fargo or PayPal is having on people because I use the product, I see other people, and it has an impact on me. And so psychologically, it helps me feel more comfortable about investing in that. And there's less unsureness, if that's a word, <laughs> to me. I guess that's my thought. What are your thoughts on that? So it's it's the comfort that, lets you stay invested, which keeps you from doing something stupid like selling too soon, which is the secret to success in investing. Yes. It's just sitting on your hands. Yes. Yeah. Doing nothing. Doing yeah. nothing is a choice. <laughs> I think that's very underappreciated is how much wealth you can make from a company that can just get a little bit better every day over a long time period. Those are the ones that can make you significant wealth. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that was one of the things that Warren Buffett illustrated during the pandemic. I think when the market was crashing, I think everybody and their brother assumed that he was going to take out the elephant gun, so to speak, and buy so much stuff. And he didn't. And people were freaking out and bashing him because he didn't. But like you were just saying, the choice not to buy is an action. No, it's a decision to not buy something because he felt like he had, you know, he was doing what he needed to do. And I think sometimes that idea of you don't have to be active just for the sake of being active. Yeah, I would somewhat agree with that. I think I would generally agree. I mean, you always want to be putting money in. And once you put it in, try not to touch it if you can. Mm -hmm. Because like you said at the beginning, the ideal holding period is forever. And it's going to be hard to hold forever if you're uncomfortable with the company. So I agree with everything Dave's saying. Like You got to be comfortable with what you're owning because that's going to be the key to continuing to own it. And when the market gets crazy, that's when people panic and freak and that's when you sell too early and you got to stick through it if you want to have that compounding. Yeah, totally. Totally agree. All right. Well, with that, we will go ahead and wrap up our conversation for this evening. I wanted to thank everybody for taking the time to send us those great questions. Those were all great stuff. And it was a lot of fun to talk about those things. And hopefully you guys got a good takeaway or two. And Carson, we are not trying to pick on you, please. We just were in a little bit of a feisty mood today. So please keep in mind all those things and try to take everything we were saying to help you. So without any further ado, I'll go ahead and sign us off. You guys go out there and invest with a margin of safety, emphasis on the safety. Have a great week. We'll talk to you all next week. We hope you enjoyed this content. Seven Steps to Understanding the Stock Market shows you precisely how to break down the numbers 
in an engaging and readable way with real-life examples. Get access today at stockmarketpdf.com. Until next time, have a prosperous day. The information contained is for general information and educational purposes only. It is not intended for a substitute for legal, commercial, and or financial advice from a licensed professional. Review our full disclaimer at einvestingforbeginners.com.